Good morning. It's Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith, who has Victoria Day off. It's uh, the long weekend Monday, and uh, yesterday morning I was doing CKNW weekend mornings and uh, talking a great deal with an excited tone in my voice about the anticipated flyby of the snowbirds. They were supposed to have wound up their cross-Canada tour here in British Columbia. They were to have left Kamloops yesterday morning, flown down over the Okanagan Valley and all of those communities and then turned west heading across the Hope Princeton down over the Fraser Valley uh, and over all of Metro Vancouver and then out over and down and up Vancouver Island completing the National Tour of Inspiration and uh, we're calling right here on CKNW yesterday morning re- reminding listeners that they were on the way and of course it's always a fine moment when they pass by. Well that w- moment was never to have come as we learned uh, yesterday evening uh, in Kamloops. Uh, we'll go to Kamloops and check in with Global's Paul Johnson in just a few minutes. But before we do that, a few moments from Simi's show a few hours ago in which Simi had conversations with people in Kamloops like Elwood Delaney who remember what they saw yesterday. So we we're outside with, the, with my daughter and we could, we could hear the jets coming because we're close to the airport and they tend to kind of bank around our house. We get a good view and then they go up the valley. But the one banked like it normally did, the other one kind of took off at a sharper bank and kind of went in behind the trees. And you could kind of see it start to kind of head down. And then you saw like kind of the explosion of the ejection of the one pilot getting out. And then shortly thereafter, you could hear the explosion and smoke pooling up. And we, of course, saw that someone had, uh, of course, many, many fans of the Snowbirds with their phones uh, taking pictures of all this. And so we have, we can see, as we listen to these descriptions, we can see in our mind's eye the images that we, uh, unfortunately, have seen all too frequently in the past few hours. Mr. Delaney went on to talk about how the plane didn't quite sound right. Not really. Like we, We've seen them lots because we're on the flight path, even for all commercial planes. We, we're used to kind of plane noises, so... But uh, you could hear it sounded different, but just to kind of, like, initially we kind of thought maybe it was doing something for everybody that's, you know, kind of at the airport watching until you kind of, until it's, you saw it going down. And we'll find out more about that in just a few moments. But a few words from former co-worker uh, remembering Captain Jennifer Casey. This is Sarah Van Gilst. Sunshine. <laughs> Um, yeah, she was, she was a really joyful person to be around. It's incredibly tragic because one of the things that I do know the most about the Stonebirds is they, um, beyond just sort of the demonstration team being the teamwork that, that they kind of, dem- that they are, um, but, you know, safety is so important for them. Um, so with something like this happening, it's, it's really shocking just to think that it could happen this way. Shocking to the entire nation. Thank you, Sarah. We'll now go live to uh, Kamloops. Global BC reporter Paul Johnson on the scene, uh, of course, has been there for several hours. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Paul. Good morning. Good morning. We were watching your reports last night on Global News. Uh, What can you tell us this morning that you weren't able to last night? Well, it's um, the investigation is clearly uh, kicking into gear here. There's more military personnel on the ground. There's a bunch of new vehicles that have clearly driven here from uh, from out of town. Uh, we saw a big C-130 Hercules land at the airport about an hour and a half ago. So the military is mustering its resources 
to do what's going to be a big investigation here. They've got two sites here that they're going to be paying attention to. One is where the plane crashed, and they're going to be looking at that, and with special attention, I would imagine, to the engine to try to figure out why they appear to have lost power right after takeoff. The other site, about five properties away, is um, where the two aircrew came down, where there was parachutes and ejection seats. Um, the pilot who survived, he landed on the roof of that property, and then Captain Jen Casey, who was on the ground, who did not survive. And they're going to be looking at that. Probably, I would imagine that's going to go for a number of days. Paul, I guess the, 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 if there's any good news to be derived from this story, it's that there were no casualties on the ground. The residents of that property into which the plane uh, crashed, uh, fortunately, had left their home just a few minutes earlier. Um, yes, uh, that's a, a miraculous outcome here. I mean, you had a basically, uh, you know, an acrobatic jet crash into a property was full of jet fuel, yeah. started a fire, nobody was hurt there. So uh, that's a good thing that comes out of this tragedy. And of course, the horrible news is the loss of life of Captain Jennifer Casey. And Paul, you have a kind of personal connection to this because you've come to know Cap- Captain Casey over the last year. You were working with her on a Snowbirds documentary leading up to a big anniversary they're coming up to. Tell us more about uh, Captain Casey and your relationship with her that's uh, come to fruition over the last year. Yeah, I mean, anybody in the media in Canada who dealt with the snowbirds over the past couple of seasons would have interacted with with Jen Casey. She was their spokesperson. Uh, She was their public affairs officer, their PAFO in the lingo of the military. Mm -hmm. And she was an exceptionally capable and wonderful ambassador for that program and uh, really for the Canadian forces in general. Uh, she had a really interesting backstory. She was originally from Nova Scotia, and she started out in, in news. She was a radio reporter exactly, yeah. and worked in Nova Scotia and Eastern Ontario for a while, then decided she wanted to join the forces. She did that. She became an officer, and uh, she, clearly she was very good at what she did because uh, only the best of the best get to be the public affairs officer for the Snowbirds and fly all over North America with them telling their story. Mm -hmm. So I worked closely with her to uh, set up um, the shoots that we did, and we went out to Moose Jaw, which is where they're based, in Saskatchewan in January, and interviewed the pilots and her, and showed some of their operations, and uh, they were gearing up for what was going to be a really big season, um, and they were going to be celebrating the fact that they've been flying the the Canada Air Tutor now for 50 years, a Canadian-designed Canadian-built airplane. I mean, we don't even have the industrial base now to be able to build an airplane like that. And yet it's still flying, and uh, it's exceedingly popular in the air show circuit. The snowbirds are beloved, and a lot of that has to do uh, with that airplane. It's the perfect plane for putting on a crowd-pleasing air show. And they have... I'm, I'm sorry, Paul, they, the the crowd-pleasing aspects of the air shows the, the performed by the Snowbirds, Paul, of course, this was to have been, as I understand their schedule, the last day of this national 
cross-Canada inspiration tour. They were going to leave Kamloops, fly down over the Okanagan, and then out to the coast, down over the Fraser Valley and the Lower Mainland, and finish off over Vancouver Island. La- yesterday was to have been the last day of this national tour, correct? Yeah, they were almost done. Um, you know, they started in Nova Scotia, and then they came west, and... Um, you know, they weren't doing air show acrobatic stuff. They were doing flyovers exactly, of yeah. uh, population centers to uh, let Canadians who've been struggling through the COVID pandemic know that they're not alone and we're all in this together. And here's a, uh, a familiar and uh, much-beloved uh, national icon still flying. And uh, they accomplished that for the most part up until uh, this tragedy here in Canada. What did uh, Jennifer Casey and her colleagues in the Snowbirds tell you, Paul, about the nature of this mission? It wasn't, as you say, it wasn't an air show performance mission, but it was a, a unification mission, an inspiration mission, and a thank you to all of the first responders and all the rest of us for staying home and helping to flatten the curve. What did the Snowbirds themselves say about this mission? They were very happy to do this. Um, one of the other pilots, um, a, a BC guy, Scott Boyd of Burnaby, um, you know, he made the point that, you know, at seven o'clock, people go out and bang pots and pans to uh, show their support for our frontline workers. And he said, you know, I've got a jet and a jet engine, and I'm going to make a big sound with that. And that's how we're going to do this. And he said that this mission was as important to them as any year show they've ever done. I believe that too, and you, uh, and of course, they, you, and I both know how how much of an inspiration the Snowbirds have always been in this country, whether it's small town Canada or the biggest cities in in the land. Uh, when they fly by, everybody looks up and everybody warms up for a few seconds. It has that immediate effect, doesn't it? Sure does. And the Snowbirds are a great Canadian story, you know. Um, If you look at countries in the world with populations under 50 million, uh, very few of them uh, have an aerial demonstration team. Uh, Of the ones that do, um, most aren't flying planes they built themselves and aren't flying nine of them and aren't doing it to the caliber that the snowbirds are doing. I mean, you know, when you go to the Abbotsford Air Show, for instance, um, you know, you're going to see, you know, the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds or the Navy's Blue Angels uh, come, and they're going to put on a show, and it's great. Um, and then the Snowbirds are going to come, and the crowd-pleasing factor that the Snowbirds pull off is right up there uh, with what the Americans can do with much greater resources and, of course, with faster, more powerful jets. Um, it turns out, uh, interestingly, that those Canada Air Tutors uh, – with less power are actually better suited to doing a show that keeps all of the action right in front of the audience. Sure. And when they fly those nine planes together, um, it's a beautiful show. It is indeed. And really, they're the only ones who do it. So they are a Canadian icon. And um, the status of their future, I'm I'm sure, is going to be unclear while they sort all of this out. But uh, one can only hope that uh, they get through this and they get flying as soon as they can because we love them. 
Good morning, it's Sterling Fox sitting in for Mike Smith, who has Victoria Day off. It is a 15-degree Monday morning in Vancouver, coming up to 9.35. Almost one in four B.C. nonprofit organizations believe they could be forced to close down within the next six months due to COVID-19. That's according to a new survey from The Vantage Point, an organization that does training and consulting for nonprofit groups. That survey, which heard from a 1,000 organizations also found that 74% had seen fundraising revenue fall, 59% had seen earned income dry up, and 78% of nonprofits are seeing a disruption in services. This is not a trend that is welcome. To talk a little bit about it and its impact on individuals is the executive director of The Vantage Point. A pleasure to welcome Alison Bruin to the program. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Allison. Expand a little. Tell us a little bit more about the Vantage Point, and then we'll dive into the numbers you've just produced. Sure. Well, Vantage Point is a charity nonprofit ourselves, um, and we provide supports to nonprofits um, across the province in terms of supporting education and training, governance, planning, leadership, all that kind of stuff. How long have you been around, Allison? We've been around 75 years. Okay. Uh, so you would know what's going on in BC. And this survey that you did, I, I just quoted a couple of, uh, of numbers in a sort of headline fashion, but you did deal with yeah. over a thousand organizations in assembling this data, didn't you? We did, yes. We really got it out to the community. And so um, tell us more about your findings. This is all post-COVID-19. So this is all since basically mid-March that all the, the, this dramatic findings have begun to be uh, discovered by your group, correct? Yes. We, uh, the, uh, the survey itself was, uh, was done and compiled in April. So COVID was a few weeks underway by the time we got the results okay. um, to see this, yeah. And uh, talk to us a little bit about some of your member organizations. Obviously, we would know almost all of them, but just remind us of a few. Well, actually, you'd be surprised, I think. Most people, um, when they think of the nonprofit sector, they tend to think of the bigger charities, like the YWYM, the cancer agencies, that kind of thing. But our members actually run the gamut from small volunteer-run seniors drop-in programs in small towns, uh, trade associations that help professionals in their work um, to uh, to even bigger organizations, arts groups, uh, sports groups, all kinds of organizations. We have quite a diverse membership. And you wrote a piece uh, in the last few days, uh, which was headlined, No Immunity, the Impacts mm-hmm. of COVID-19 on Our Sector, referring to the nonprofit sector. And I've already quoted some rather alarming numbers, Allison. Elaborate mm-hmm. a little more if, if, uh, in terms of direct impact. Well, if we imagine um, a small town, a small community in the lower mainland, you can... Um, in any small community, you're going to see sports groups for kids to get together and uh, play sports, for adults to join each other in community, uh, for artists to find platforms and festivals to show their work. Um, all those kinds of events and activities and daily drop-ins for families, all those sorts of organizations. We touch nonprofits daily, mm-hmm. um, and, we, uh, and to have half of a quarter of them disappear um it's still early days we don't know for sure what's going to happen uh, means that there'll be fewer places for children to go fewer places for families to get help fewer places for women to 
escape violence, fewer places for artists to be able to express their voice, fewer places to celebrate our diversity as a community. Um, and that will start to show in terms of our mental well-being, our physical even well-being. Uh, you know, the reality is that our sector keeps people out of hospitals and away from doctors because we keep people connected and active. Um, so those are the kinds of things we're going to see as organizations start to have to shut down. And it's interesting, too, Allison, because we're talking more and more as this COVID-19 pandemic goes forward, not only about our, our uh, physical safety and uh, resisting infection and all that sort of thing, but as, the, as the, the, the shutdown continues, we become more and more uh, aware of our mental health and our, our mental mm-hmm. well-being and spiritual health, for that matter, for crying out mm-hmm. loud. And, exactly. and, and the longer this goes on, the more important important those non-medical but important community support groups and organizations become you're right you you do help people stay away from hospitals by offering other support options in the community do those people you you talked about some of the organizations we would know others are quite small allison do mm-hmm. all of those people in the non-profits providing that such that a, a wide variety of services are all of those people employed or are some of them volunteers oh many of them are volunteers i mean the number of of human hours that go into our sector and the work that we do um could probably be described as almost half and half paid employees and volunteers um people really commit on a variety of levels to the kind of work that we do and employees themselves paid the paid staff um, as we lose them, we, we lose the even to coordinate those very well. So it's a bit of a circle. Yeah, you're dropping off on the cell. Stop moving oh, around, Allison. <laughs> no running while we're on the radio together. Uh, I wondered, though, uh, uh, just in terms of, of the reason I asked about employees is because you've also written to the federal government uh, referencing the uh, the emergency benefits programs that they have initiated over the past, the emergency wage subsidy and the others, um, that uh, with those uh, programs exclude people who are employed by nonprofits? It sounds like it, Allison. Well, they don't, actually. They, it was unclear at the beginning because governments tend to focus on business when they talk about um, these kinds of... Um, but in the end, after some pushing and clarification, it became clear that really they were talking about employers. Okay. And our sector is a huge employer across the country. Um, and across the province. And uh, so it, it took some clarity to say, oh, you actually mean employers, not businesses. <laughs> so we are included. Um, but, of course, we're not included if we're a peer-run organization. The way and things like that don't help. Um, it's a bit questionable as to whether some of the small business loan programs are going to support the sector. Most of us tend to avoid loans because we don't want to deal with uh, debt in the long run. Sure, because yeah. we our charities and mm-hmm. we can't afford debt. So those may not help us. But the wage subsidy, those nonprofits who have staff teams, like like my own organization, in fact, it's been very meaningful for us. So. 
Sterling Fox sitting in for Mike Smith on this holiday Monday. Welcome back. It is coming up to 1035. There has been a disturbing increase in incidents of anti-Asian racism around Metro Vancouver since this COVID-19 pandemic began, ranging from graffiti to verbal harassment to violent assaults. According to Vancouver Police, as of May 1st, there had been 20 anti-Asian hate crimes reported in the first four months of this year. That's compared to 12 in all of last year. Here to talk about it is uh, Chris Lee. Uh, Mr. Lee is the director of the Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies Program at UBC. Chris, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. Well, it's it's an unfortunate uh, set of circumstances that brings us together for a chat this morning. Chris, talk talk to us a little bit about your impression. I just read a factual story from Global News uh, relating to this most recent incident in which an Indigenous woman was assaulted, uh, being having been mistaken for being an Asian person uh, by uh, someone who clearly was unhappy with either. Yeah, I mean, that incident was really shocking. I, I live in that neighborhood. Um, it's a wonderful neighborhood full of families. It's multicultural. And now I have to think about my safety as I walk, you know, the streets of East Vancouver. Um, but I think this incident really reveals something about the nature of these attacks, which is they're about scapegoating people, mm-hmm. stereotyping them on the basis of appearance, um, and then throwing insults and verbal assaults and other forms of assault. Um, and we've seen this happen again and again. And the effect is chilling. Um, and I think a lot of families in Vancouver and Lower Mainland are really thinking twice now about the safety of their themselves, about their parents, about their elders. Uh, and I think that has some really deep consequences for our community as a whole. Does it surprise you, Chris, uh, that there's there's this sort of undercurrent, just barely below the surface, that uh, under strained conditions, and we're all feeling a little beset upon after sixty odd days of being locked up, essentially. Uh, does it uh, does it surprise you that this undercurrent is so close to the surface? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that, you know, people are stressed out these days. It's been a difficult couple of months uh, here and around the world. Um, but to answer your question, no, I'm not surprised. And I'm not surprised because if you look at the kinds of attacks that are happening, you know, the kinds of insults that are being thrown, what people are saying, um, th- that stuff has been seen before. Um, and it's been part of our history as a province, part of our history as a city. Um, but the stereotypes that we're seeing, in fact, are not new. You know, so what we're seeing actually is, racist attacks that are essentially recycling older forms of racism. And I think that's why we shouldn't be surprised that's happening, even though each time it happens, it, of course, it shocks all of us. Well, of course, and it is. And and it just, I suppose, there's such a distinction too, Chris, and I suppose it, it, it's, a, it's a semantical distinction for some, but there is a, a, quite a distinction between a physical assault and graffiti. But I, I suppose at the root of it is precisely the same problem. That's right. And I think part of what we need to see, and we're, we're seeing it now with all these extra reports, is there's a long continuum of racism, you know, with physical assault or verbal assault being the most extreme version. Right. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, graffiti. Uh, but we're also seeing, you, you know, sort of casual racism, casual prejudice, jokes that are told about different uh, racial groups. And we have to see that all of that comes together to make people feel vulnerable and open to attack during this time. 
So what are you hearing? You're talking about uh, your, your family and, and your neighborhood and you living in a part of the city in which uh, some of these uh, incidents have occurred. What are you hearing from members of the Asian community just in general in terms of yeah. safety, uh, just out and about on the streets of the city, Chris? I mean, there's a lot of concern about our ability to protect people uh, who may be targeted for these kind of attacks. Um, and it's not just Asian people who have Asian heritage, as we saw you know, in the, in the news today. Um, I think there's a lot of concern about what are the supports available for people. So we know that, um, for better or for worse, most of these incidents never get reported to authorities. Um, and that's definitely what I've been hearing anecdotally. I mean, these stories bring out a lot more personal experiences of people who have had similar kinds of hostile encounters. Uh, and so there's a lot of concern about, um, you know, how, how are victims being supported? How can families be supported? How can people stay safe? Um, and then more broadly, because, you know, we're in a difficult, as you mentioned, a crisis time, mm-hmm. um, are our communities being supported during this crisis in terms of health, in terms of economic well-being? And that's where I think we really start getting into these kind of structural distinctions that have made us vulnerable to these racist attacks. Interesting. Do you, and I mentioned just some raw numbers from our news desk here. Mm-hmm. According to the cops, as of the 1st of May, 20 yeah. anti-Asian hate crimes reported in the first four months of this year, yeah. compared to a dozen in all of last year. Um, is there still uh, under-reporting going on, Chris? Is that number actually probably lower than exists, really? Yeah, I mean, from all accounts we've seen as a community organizations um, and social services, um, this number is low, and partially because the police, of course, are interested in particular kinds of assaults. Sure. You know, they have to be crimes. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these incidents are not ne- don't necessarily rise up to that. They may be verbal, they may be kinds of hostility, and those never get reported. Um, and what we have seen sort of anecdotally and informally is a huge number of reports of this kind of racial, uh, racial scapegoating. Um, and the numbers are higher than what the, the police have said. And this is what the police have told us as well. So yeah. I think that's a consensus. It is hard to find data on this right now, and it's especially in the middle of a crisis. So I think one of the things that hopefully will become more clear, um, unfortunately, is going to be just the range of this racism. And I, I, I'm just curious as to, because uh, you, you were talking about uh, community support groups for uh, members of the Asian community and so on. If they're not calling the cops to report incidents of harassment or uh, racially motivated aggression, Chris, who do they call when they need to reach out and, and, and they're all shaken and they're just not feeling very good about life at all? Sure. I mean, of course, people are relying on family and friends, uh, which is difficult at a time when we can't physically be with the people we love. Um, in some cases, more recently, some very brave people have been taken to social media and media to report their experiences. And I really commend those people, you know, who are making themselves vulnerable by right. alerting the rest of us to what's happening. Um, so that's a positive step forward. Um, I think there are also community organizations in different languages. Uh, they're kind of form support groups and victim services. And I think those need are now sort of scrambling to catch up with what's happening. And uh, the uh, community reserve, we were talking earlier to uh, one of the community organizations in Vancouver. Uh, we had uh, the people from the Vantage Point, and they work with nonprofits all over the province. Uh, mm-hmm. Talking, We're talking about them and maintaining their funding and the kind of community support that the groups that they offer, not only around Metro Vancouver, but across the province. And uh, are during these times, uh, are there sufficient resources that you're aware of to be yeah. able to handle? this increased level of anxiety? 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously different, uh, like authorities, um, police are doing, uh, you know, they're doing their best to address this. Um, but the short answer, I think, is no. I mean, I think this crisis has really uh, shown us um, the weaknesses in our society. And so um, there's been a lot of work grassroots in terms of, uh, for example, translating health information or translating the latest measures from government in terms of economic support, um, translating the latest information that we're getting around safety and public safety. And I think that work is going to be really crucial um, because uh, it's showing that we're not doing enough of that normally. And now at a time when people are feeling vulnerable, mm-hmm. we really need to step up as a larger community. So there are some um, amazing uh, projects that are happening um, that are trying to catch up on this. Um, and I think hopefully over the next couple of weeks, that will make a big difference.